What's up, what's up? This is Unstoppable REI Wealth, episode 55. I am Billy Alvaro, and today I'm interviewing two young studs from Boston, Massachusetts. These two guys, Nick Earls and Eric DiNicola, high school boys, now they're in their 30s. They're making some waves in the development area inside Boston, Mass. These guys are taking buildings, converting them over to apartments, ground up condos, selling units for a million dollars a pop. And uh, here's the key, guys. They knew nothing when they got started. They didn't have any fear, and they're absolutely crushing it. I want you to listen to the interview. It's only about a half hour, 35 minutes tops. But uh, we go through two case studies, a condo from ground up and a conversion building on how they did it, their thought process, how they actually figure out the cost. There's some good lessons in here. Listen to it. You will have properties you want to flip inside Boston that are condo conversions, land. Look these guys up. Connect with them. They're two young guys who are going places. Catch you guys in the next one. Welcome to Unstoppable Real Estate Investing Wealth. My name is Billy Alvaro, AKA the Unstoppable VA. Former billion dollar mortgage banker, gone bankrupt, turned professional real estate investor. Where each week you'll learn the tools, strategies, systems and secrets myself and other highly successful real estate investing entrepreneurs use to start, grow and scale their businesses, creating massive profits and how you can too and we'll teach you how to put those profits to work so you no longer have to. Get ready to finally experience financial freedom and generational wealth. Now let's get started. What is going on everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Unstoppable REI Wealth. I'm your host, Billy Alvaro, the Unstoppable VA, and I am on today with two gentlemen, East Coasters like myself, not New York, but close enough to Massachusetts. These gentlemen are in the space of apartment investing. Now, if you've been watching me for a little bit, you know that I have a fond desire to start getting into their space. So I'm gonna take this time to pick their brains, figure out what the hell they're doing, how they're doing it, how they're so successful. Welcome to the show, Eric and Nick, and the company name is Winter Spring Capital. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, thanks for, thanks having, for us. having us. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so listen, you guys have been partners in this business for how long? Started in 2015. And what was your background, gentlemen? Were you fix and flippers, wholesalers? I got my real estate license out of college, so I was selling mid-sized apartment buildings for a few years. Come from a construction background. My brother's a carpenter. My father's a contractor. So kind of always been in the real estate world. Eric and I have been friends for almost 20 years now. Met each other when we were kids. So I had the real estate background to start with, but Eric comes from the finance world, which, as I'm sure you know, is also very helpful in Hell real yeah. estate. Absolutely. And Eric, what about yourself? How long have you been in the finance world? Yeah, so when I, uh, yeah, Nick and I met in high school, um, and then we kind of went our separate ways for college. And uh, I was working in New York City um, right out of college. I was trading stocks, I was working in public equity. And then I started working uh, for a firm that dealt with private equity, kind of private equity information services. And uh, that was, so I, I kind of got the financial background. So I went to school for originally engineering, and I kind of switched halfway through when, you know, one of, one of the, professors said, you know, the, the guys who make the most money aren't uh, sitting in this room right now. And I said, okay, I got to kind of change my, <laughs> that, that was like a, a ding moment for me. But Nick and I always knew we wanted to do something together since high school. Uh, we didn't want to work for someone else. And, you know, I always tell Nick, it's like the first minute I sat down at my first job at 901, I said, I, there's no way I can do this. So I'm 60, like one minute into the job. So yeah, listen, so that was they're, they're cut out for it. And some people, they're not. And obviously, you know, you're cut from the cloth, I'm cut for. I can't work for somebody else. I can't be in that mundane 
nine to five, same thing every single day, punching the clock. Like, how old are you guys, if you don't mind me asking? 32. Eric's turning 32 soon. He's 31. You guys are young and in your prime, man. This is good. That's what they tell us. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah, you guys are primed to just like rocket ship takeoff. So let's get into the business that you're in today. You guys joined forces how long ago? A couple of years back? Yeah, 2015, we started our company, did our first project. Good. In 2015. And so give us this the story of how you guys formulated and said, you know what? Nick, Eric, you guys are talking. You guys have been high school friends forever. Like, we want to do this business. How did you come up with this model of going after and investing in apartments? I know Eric is a finance guy. You're a construction. But why didn't you start with single family? Why did you make the jump right into the, into the multifamily? You know, it's interesting because we, our original plan was, hey, let's save up some money for a few years and buy a rental property and just kind of go down that traditional path. The slow the way. The slow way, yeah, exactly. Uh, the painful way, you could say. But what, what we saw here in the market we're in in Boston is, you know, it's either the number one or the number two life science market in the country right now up, up there with San Francisco. And in the past 10 years, you've had this huge influx of high income workers moving into a city with very restrictive zoning. So we're not really able to keep up with the demand, which has led to prices skyrocketing. Yep. So we wanted to buy a rental property, but we saw this because I was a, in real estate sales at the time. We saw this opportunity to develop condominiums. And that's what we've been doing ever since. We've since added apartment conversions and we're doing an affordable housing job. But Boston is a really good market for condominium development just because a lot of these high income workers, you know, you've got a good luxury rental market here, but a lot of them want to own their unit. So they want to buy a condominium, but they still want to live in a dense urban center. Uh, they still want all those conveniences. They don't necessarily want to live in the suburbs. So we've been selling condominiums to people like that ever since. Our first project was a two-family, which according to the zoning code, you could add a third unit. So we took that two-family, fixed it up, increased the size of it by about 40%, added a third unit, and then sold them individually as condos and just kept kind of rolling our money back into new projects. And over the years, as we built up a reputation, we started picking up investors. So that's been our bread and butter uh, since 2015. Smart, smart. That's that's a, a pretty cool niche. And so you're you're going in ground up. Are you knocking down something that's already on the on the property or are you that seems to be your method? Yeah, it really, you know, it's project to project, um, depending on where we can add the value. But I'd say at this point, almost all of our projects are knocked down, ground up new construction. Uh, we did last year, we finished a, a, like a historical renovation. It was just a three family, really big units in a really nice part of Boston. So those sold like a million, almost a million and a half a piece, those condos. But that was a very tedious renovation. It was a historical building. We couldn't knock it down. Yeah, so rare tough. situations like that, we'll keep it. But most of the time, knock down, ground up. It, it's actually an easier process for us. What's it like to go out and to try to search for properties that you guys know you could either change the zoning or the zoning's currently there but the property that's on it is not up to the, its highest and best use like what is that process like are you looking for like a needle in a haystack trying to find these properties definitely a needle in a haystack sort of situation so a lot of times what you'd call them would be urban infill projects where you're in a, a two-family or three-family zone 
and we, we you know right now we're doing a 32 unit a 31 unit so we've kind of scaled up but this is what we had been doing for years and kind of got right. us to this level is you'd go to like a two or three family zone and you'd find a lot that's maybe double the size of the typical lots there and you'd propose to build seven eight nine units and you know you'll go through a community process but getting back to your point finding the the lots it is a needle in a haystack thing you want to find particular lots that are generally speaking oversized for their zone those are the projects that we started with going to zones like that and creating value where others didn't see it because we yeah. go through entitlement so what is that process like because i know what it's like on the single family side we can narrow down and really look at our list and hone in on the type of person we want to target and the type of property we want to target are you guys doing something similar in your space where you're getting a list and really honing in and finding out, you know, those top 100 properties that have the highest and best use that you guys can go after? Yeah, you know, it's kind of been an evolving process, Billy, over the years of doing this, where early on, you know, we didn't really understand this concept of connections and really how to build out your network and have deals coming to you that are off market. Yeah. So we were looking on, you know, the listing service, multiple listing service, MLS for our region and kind of, you know, we just we'd look at multifamilies, we kind of put in a price cap based on, you know, where we were at that point. And then the process kind of evolved where we still do that. But there's a lot of guys who are who are coming up kind of behind us or similar peers to us where there's a lot of competition for stuff that's on market. So we oh, really yeah. bought into, and it kind of was organic, this kind of building our network. Well, like I said, we didn't really realize or buy into it at first, but once we did, we now are at the point where, you know, the best deals we get have come to us from either brokers, off market deals, commercial level properties that, you know, aren't even really on the MLS sometimes. And I'd say even a few of them, we have big lists of off-market deals. Well, when I say off-market, I mean not even deals, just people who own a house, for example, that we see, we know, okay, it's in this zone. That yep. zone is very favorable for this, this, and this. Got it. Let's call these 500 people. We got a few that way too. Got it. So you have a dual process to get it. And networking, you know, y y people sometimes knock it like, hey, marketing is the way to go. And networking, you just get, you build your network, you get free deals coming in like left and right. Do you guys have a process for networking? Like, are you intentful with the way in which you network to drive in business? You know, we have a, um, a third partner, kind of like a junior partner. He joined the company a couple of years after us, but another friend of ours. And the guy we don't have room for a fourth, man. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't keep splitting the pot too many times. But he, he's, uh, he's kind of like a full-time networker. So he deals with investors. He's gotten off-market properties. You know, he tries to build the brand on LinkedIn and other areas just to get the word out about our company. And we've gotten deals that way. We've got off-market deals that way, and we've met brokers that way. And then, like, as Eric said, a lot of it's organic, you know, just being in business for however many years now, six, seven years. We've done a bunch of projects. People have seen our work on social media, or they've seen it in person, literally in the market. People know us. We have past investors. Over time, people just start messaging us and saying, hey, you know, I, I see you're doing this. Do you have any other deals you're looking for? Now I get messages from brokers and I don't even have to try to network with them. I just, people are messaging me on LinkedIn, emailing me. I don't even know how they got my email. It's all just from putting our brand out there and, you know, doing good work. You know, you had a bunch of successful projects you'll build a reputation and 
deals will come to you. So it's it's been nice. How long ago did you bring on the third partner? Just over two years ago now. Because uh, Eric, when I November. when I asked the question about if you guys is there intent behind the way in which you're you're um, getting your networking done, I saw you shaking your head no a little bit. But honestly, you really do have a process because this third partner is your key to developing outside business. He's the guy. You guys might not be focusing, but that third partner is. And I guarantee you he's intentful with the way he's marketing. He's putting out his text, his uh, media posts, and bringing these people in. So key. That's a key takeaway I want the listeners to have here. If you're going to be networking, in the beginning it might be organic. You don't know what you're doing. But if you put some intent behind it, you're going to get some serious results, as Eric and Nick have with their third partner, who I'm assuming that's his, probably his primary focus is business development. That's a good point because it's actually, you know, we kind of looked at it as, okay, we need to market. He he needs to get our name out there. We need to market. We have a, a social media girl who works for us and she posts a bunch of stuff on our accounts and gets in. Our thought was we need to get our brand out there for investors so that we can bring on investors to the project. But it's kind of had a two prong effect where now because of that, because we were so intentional about that, the you know, deals have come too because just by sort of marketing and getting out there looking for investors, tons of people you interact with, maybe they're not investing, but they they have deals of their own. So that's actually a good point, Billy. Yeah, I love it. You guys are doing the right thing. So give us an idea of the projects that you're doing currently. I know, Nick, you said that you have a 31 and a 35 unit that you're in the process of developing out. Yeah, so we have a ground up luxury condominium building right in the heart of kind of that life science sector part of Boston, five minutes from Harvard and MIT. That'll be 32 units. Um, It's going to have some real nice amenity spaces, gym, co-working, lounge, roof deck. So that'll be a high-end luxury condominium building. So we'll be selling all 32 units. And then outside of Boston, kind of a more affordable satellite city, called Lowell, we're doing an office conversion to apartments. So it's an existing office building and we're converting it into 31 apartments with five first floor retail tenants as well. And uh, that one will also have like a gym, nice roof deck. So one's a rental and then one is going to be sold as condominiums. Got it. So the affordable piece is rental. So I want to, I want to actually take some time because this is going to be good to show and showcase your expertise to the listeners. I want to use these two as case studies, right? I want to get into you and pick your brains to really give my listeners some takeaways of how you guys think through the process to come up with your numbers. So my question is, I know what it's like in the single family world. You see either a piece of land or you see a property. We can calculate very easily, figure out what the after repair value is, know what our construction costs are, and then come in with an offer based on what the risk is and what kind of returns we want. My question to both you, and you guys could break it up, Eric and Nick, the first property, the the higher end luxury ground up. When you're going in, you're looking at this property to make a bid. How are you guys determining what you could offer on the property if you don't yet know what your all your costs are? Like, how does that process work? That's a good question. So we, you know, we look at it and we say, okay, there's 32 units here. And for example, in this one, it's actually four of them are affordable units per city requirement when you get to a certain size. Yep. So we know right away, okay, those four, we know what they sell for. There's a specific price they have to sell for. So of the remaining 28, we look at comps in the area. We look at condos that have sold and there's tons of them in that area, which is why we were interested in the first place. And we see, okay, what are they getting per square foot? 
in this area, very high price per square foot. And we say, okay, each of our units is, you know, 900 square feet. They're getting this much per square foot. We know those four affordable. So across these 32 units, we could sell this thing out for X, right? And then we say, okay, we know the square footage of this building. We know roughly the construction cost per square foot to build something. So then we just multiply that and we come up with, okay, so this is the total cost to build this thing hard cost wise then we look at okay if that's the cost to build this thing and that's what we could sell it for one more component in there would be kind of like soft costs so we kind of know those roughly per foot you know it's a hard cost a little easier meaning you know true construction costs you know your contractors cost a little easier than soft costs because those can vary but you work in based on our estimates soft costs uh, you know legal fees architecture fees and then we work in interest once we see kind of this total cost we can calculate interest based on what a loan might be so now we know okay the total cost for this thing would be this before we get to a price and we can sell it out for this what kind of profit margin could we live with and would a bank finance and then we kind of just work backwards land on a price and that that's kind of a very high level overview of yeah. how we would do it so it makes sense. So it's just, it's very similar to the way we would do it on the single family side, sure. which is a few more different numbers that That's you have right. to pull in and do your calculation. Eric, with that regards, when you're figuring out your overall process, how long do you take into consideration? Well, first off, first question is I'm sure you're buying this subject too. So you know that you can get the amount of units that you want to get in, or are you guys just buying the dirt and, and rolling the dice? It varies. It varies. If we see yeah. a really good project where we think, look, we could get this thing through zoning. There's a lot of precedent in the area. We're only going to try to go for, say, 10 units and we see 20 unit building down the street, another 15. We might take that gamble. But the gamble would come with a caveat that worst case scenario, what we could do within the zoning code by right would still break us even. So there's Got never going to be a situation we couldn't do something. But you, we smart. do love contingent deals. Obviously, it's much better for us. Yeah, it's smart. And in your neck of the woods, how long does it take once you get through the entitlements to actually break grounds? I'm up here in New York, and I got to tell you, we have a project, a 48 unit that we've been working on, three and a half years trying to get this through to get the entitlements. It is a pain in the yep. ass. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah, probably not too different here. I mean, we've got ton of red tape bigger projects and mid-sized projects can take three four years the smaller ones we did we've gotten lucky where we've gone through in six months getting a project entitled and then we've had other projects where we were in permitting for two and a half years so crazy yeah it is so not you can't control the city uh, employees response time <laughs> i know i know it's a pain yeah so when you're doing that then back to eric on the finance side I'm assuming you're not closing until you have all your entitlements in to where you can break ground. So you really have no holding costs. You just have your money that's hard that went down on the property. Is that right? Uh, again, it does depend. I mean, there are times where we've had to hold on to properties and pay holding costs that entire time. So it has to, for that to happen, it has to kind of be a home run. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we have to know, okay, look, we're willing to eat this cost. So if we, if we take on investor capital, we're going to, you know, say up front, Hey, look, you know, this is the amount of time it's going to take. There's soft costs, meaning carry costs, pre-construction soft costs that we have to fund. So we're going to raise for that as well yeah. at that stage. And when you do that raise, Eric, are you telling your investors up front, look, this is all going to be deferred until we start selling these things off. There's going to be no interest payments. Yeah. So it for our condo project, since we're kind of in that niche, 
we look at a realistic time frame for the investors. We say, hey, look, this is going to be a balloon payment at the end of the project. And as soon as you know the loan is paid off, the next step is paying you guys all your principals. And we, as units sell, because you know they're condos and, they, and they'll sell individually, we'll continue to pay you guys back. And we usually give a preferred rate of return, kind of a total preferred rate of return over the two, three-year time frame. And we pay them all their principal, pay them that preferred rate of return, and then we can start partaking in the profit. So they know going in, it's going to be a delayed. Uh, Got it. So you have a delayed process on your on your financing. You're giving them no equity share on the upside? It depends. You know, we have, but we found for a lot of the guys who invest with these condo-specific deals we do, they, they kind of prefer this, this structure prefer. better. That's yeah. good. What kind of preferred rates of return do you guys offer to your investors in projects like that? Um, you know, again, it varies on like we estimate the risk, but and it's the time frame and everything. But I'd say, you know, say a typical condo project, two, three years, we might say, you know, look, we'll give you uh, about maybe 50% on your money uh, preferred at the end before we, you know, touch anything. So it's a, it's a decent return. It's a, it's a Absolutely. real, yeah, it's a real serious kicker for sure. That's a, that's a great way to do it. So you take it on a partner like that. This is good. So now I want to switch gears, right? I mean, the, the first case study we went over, very similar to the way we do it on the single family side, construction costs, whether it's a, a property, you're looking at your soft costs, your hard costs, your financing costs, putting it all in, assessing your risk. Now let's switch gears and talk about the one where you're doing a conversion. Because this is where I would think it's more of a, and I could be wrong, but I think it's more of a higher level. A lot more assumptions have to go into this because you have a building that's as is that you now have to come in and try to figure out what the hell is it going to take to convert this thing. Walk us through that process, either one of you. Yeah, so what we did with this one is we put in an offer with a due diligence contingency, and that basically says from day one, we're going to be walking through here with our contractor or architect. So we'll bring the architect in after we put in an offer. Obviously, we do pretty much the same process Eric described before we submit an offer, the pencil test kind of. But yep. then, as you said, it's there's a lot more unknowns with this sort of project. So then we want to kind of sharpen the pencil, bring in the architect and the contractor. We want to be able to walk away from this deal if any of the assumptions we made were wrong. And, you know, an owner could reject a contingency like that, but usually people understand, you know, you're going in and converting an existing building. So they go through, the architect will draw up how many units you can get. We'll go back and forth, kind of tweak it a bit. And then the contractor will look at the plans, he'll walk through the building, and then he'll give us a price. So we'll kind of know all that ahead of time with the ability to walk away if anything's wrong. So we, we eliminate the risk just by having a simple due diligence clause. It is more complicated, though, because our goal with these buildings is to be able to add value and then refinance and hold on to them, right. whereas, you know, just selling them, it's a lot simpler. So we look at, you know, when it's stabilized, how is this building going to perform? So we look at similar buildings that are old, historical, nice buildings that have been converted into apartments, and um, we look at similar, you know, what their rents are for a building with similar amenities, similar quality level. And then we'll look at what their expenses are. A lot of times you can get that from CoStar. Maybe some of those buildings similar to yours are on the open market and you can look at their offering memorandum, get that stabilized expense data, get that stabilized revenue. And then you just plug that in based on the plans your architect drew up. We need to do all this in order to get the project financed to begin with, because we yeah. have to show the bank, you know, how is this building going to look? And then this deal is actually even a little more complicated because 
it has historic tax credits involved. A lot of these buildings in Massachusetts anyways, just because of the, the industrial history here in the 1800s and early 1900s, a lot of them went through a period of not being used and, and kind of becoming dilapidated. But in the past couple decades, the historic tax credit program has created strong incentives for developers to go in, fix up these buildings, and then the government will provide you with additional subsidy through the form of a tax credit, which you then sell to an investor as a high tax bill. So that's a, a whole other ball game that we've we've only recently kind of wrapped our heads around and we work with consultants that help us with that. But that's another element to um, these conversion sort of deals. Yeah, you're learning as you go. So when you guys first started getting into, I know you have your smaller projects that you did. And I know Nikki said, you know, in this particular deal, you had your assumptions that you made up front and you brought in your team, your architect, your, your contractor. What if you don't have any historical data to plug into the spreadsheet, what in the hell would you do? Would you just skip that and go right to letter of intent to purchase the building with the due diligence and then jump into, you know, your architect and your, your contractor and hope for the best? Like, what would that look like? You had no experience. You were going in, you had no assumption, no previous experience and assumptions to put into your, your uh, spreadsheet in the beginning. Yeah, it'd be, we'd probably do a longer due diligence period and see if we could get that accepted. If we really had a good feeling about it and that was almost it, we just had very little data or no data, we might have a feel about just kind of the general market and we say, okay, look, we know people are starting to move there. People are renting there. Because again, these conversions are rentals, not condos. We're going to try to hold on as an asset for the long term. So that's what we would do. We'd probably put in an offer with a heavy due diligence period. Hope was accepted. If not, you know, they probably counter. And then we, we kind of weigh all the options, say, all right, is this worth it to take this sort of higher counter that they want to do based on everything we know? And I would say that we try to find data somehow like maybe there's no data for that market but we look at adjacent markets and then we'd have to probably make some assumptions like okay the rent is slightly lower here as opposed to this neighboring city so maybe the expense ratio will be slightly higher but we'd find some data otherwise i don't think eric or i would would invest in a project if there's no data at all you know, I think the, the back-end data for, for rentals is going to be pretty much available. It's really just the construction side of it. If somebody doesn't has never gone through a conversion, they're like, where do I even start with figuring out what these numbers are going to run me? That's yeah, actually absolutely. a really good point because we, on our first foray into this, Nick, we did kind of almost, we're looking at, okay, we know new construction in Boston. We know what that costs per foot. We know what renovation costs per foot, which is kind of why we had to bring in the contractor during this due diligence period and really get a sense what what are we dealing with here because we didn't really know per foot what a renovation like that when you're you have an old building that wasn't residential but you're yeah. keeping part of it you know what i mean and you might be keeping some of the most you know, the, the most expensive components to construct but you also have to to change its use so we now have an idea roughly and it is still a pretty mm-hmm. wide range on the per foot cost to do something like this but we've really narrowed it down so we could look at the next project and say okay, it's a 50,000 square foot building. We know it'll cost maybe, you know, this much per foot, 140, something like that, for example. How can we make this work? So we narrowed it down, but it it is still definitely a bit more of a wild card on a project to project basis than say new construction condos. You know, the key thing though is gentlemen, is that you're not just shying away. You're actually taking it on and going forward. You're not saying, hey, I don't have the data. I'm afraid to figure this out. Like you're locking it up 
and you're making shit happen. And that's the key takeaway that I want my listeners to hear is that you're not just putting your hands up and be like, uh, we'll wait, we'll wait until we get on and find somebody that's going to help us. Like you're making shit happen. So, so good for you guys. Tell me about the, the conversion one. How many square foot is the building? It's about 50,000 square feet. 50,000. And how many units you said you're going to get into that? About 38? 31 residential units and then five retail tenants, first floor. And then so there'll be a couple office tenants on the second floor. We have an, uh, it'll either be a large office space or a couple smaller office spaces. What's the expected uh, value of that building when it's all said and done? Do you know that off the top of your head, Eric? I believe around seven, eight million. Yeah, depending on where caps go, we we have a range of like eight, eight to nine, nine and a half, ten. Really, kind of could get could get as high as ten. We keep seeing cap rate compression over there, so two. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Give us an idea of what the caps are. What are you trading for in that area? That area, at this point, I mean, your lowest you're seeing is like five. You're seeing up to like six and a half for buildings like this. And then like Boston, this is a satellite city we're talking about of Boston. Right. And then in Boston, you're seeing some sub four stuff, which is why we can't really that's build insane. a place in Boston. It's, it's tough. Yeah, like that's insane. And you know, when, when you see a building that's stabilized and it's trading for sub four, it's like, how are the guys who are investing into this on the back end making money? At a sub four, <laughs> like you, you know, my view, you got to go in and add value to get to that number, you know, to get to that cap. But to buy it at that cap, it's insane. Yeah, we've asked ourselves that same question for, especially. I mean, you're in you're in New York, we're in Boston, so we've, yeah. we've been seeing the same thing and asking the same questions. But as developers, it's a uh, it's easier to get that extra value than just buying it, obviously. Yeah. For sure. All right. So fast forward for me, guys. What is your plans? What are you looking to accomplish over the next five, 10 years? Because you're young. You're 32. I'm expecting big things out of you guys. Yeah. I mean, so we really like this office conversion strategy. We put another offer on another similarly sized one last week. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. We're starting to scout these off market, these kind of these older mill buildings. And uh, we're going to keep doing condo conversions. Then another thing that we're doing right now that we haven't touched on is affordable housing. We're doing a smaller affordable housing development project in partnership with the city of Boston. That'll be seven units. They'll be for um, home ownership. There'll be one rental. Um, and that's our first foray into that world. But we see that as like that's going to be a huge thing. You know, it already is. And uh, with the way the cost of living in this area and across the country, even just the yeah. cost of, of rent versus, you know, minimum wage workers, affordable housing is huge, is going to become bigger. Yeah, um, so we're, we're getting our foot in the door there and hopefully we'll be doing some big projects. Are you, uh, are you gentlemen looking to stay within your area, within the, you know, the Boston area? Are you looking to go out into other markets as you grow? We're pretty opportunistic. I mean, if we see an opportunity elsewhere, we're okay with uh, exploring it. I mean, we had for a good part of last year, we were really focused on the southeast of the country, trying to buy much larger, maybe 100 plus unit properties that could you know, maybe like class B built in the 80s value add. 
where we wouldn't redevelop anything, but we'd come in, increase managerial efficiency, try to raise rents and just kind of maybe do some physical upgrades. But we put in a couple offers, actually. We didn't, we didn't get to best and final on all of them, but um, we were pretty close um, to taking some down. And what ended up happening was kind of the cap rate compression down in like Florida, North yeah. Carolina, Georgia. We were very excited about it, but it's, it happened so fast. You were seeing cap yeah. rates, they were lower than Boston. And we were yeah, like, well, crazy. you're buying it for two years out assuming you make all these upgrades in that so we just we kind of backed off that and have now refocused right in our you know neck of the woods a bit more i love it who do you want to contact you from my podcast you want people who have cash to contact you invest you want people who are property finders in your area to hit you like who, who can we have like reach out to you guys and network in your area yeah i mean both of those that's typically you know what we're looking for is just to build our network people are interested in investing in development deals where you can get maybe a bit higher return than a lot of other real estate investments and brokers who are uh, looking to find help us find projects those are two the two big ones tell me uh, how can they find you guys online so we're pretty active on instagram at winter spring capital our website winterspringcapital.com tons of articles about development and pretty much everything we've learned since we've been in business got some investor guides on there and then eric and i are both on linkedin nick earls and eric de nicola i love it you guys are uh, two solid individuals i can't wait to see you guys grow over the years and uh, we should stay in touch too because i'm getting into this business my fix and flip and wholesale business is on autopilot and so i'm taking my energy and really focusing in on building out a development side of the business and my personal goal is 5,000 units over the next 10 years. And I know when I focus on it, it comes to fruition, but I need to focus on it. That's what I'm doing. Nice. That's a good that's goal. Great. I like it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great goal. All right, gentlemen. Loved having you guys on. Boston boys, hit them up if you guys have deals in the area. If you have money you want to invest into development projects, Eric and Nick are your guys. Gentlemen, I appreciate you having you on. Good to meet you. Let's stay in touch. I got your cell phones. I'll hit you with a text afterwards. Let's definitely stay in touch. Thanks Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. That was great. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Unstoppable Real Estate Investing Wealth. My mission is to give you, my listeners, the blueprint for success, the insider secrets for starting, growing, and scaling your real estate investing business so you can experience and live the unstoppable lifestyle. I've made it simple for you. To catapult yourself to success, Go to billyssecrets.com. That's B-I-L-L-Y-S secrets.com. There you will find every single tool, tip, trick, strategy, system, and secret used to make millions of dollars as a real estate investor. Everything my team uses and my guests use all in one place for you to tap into so you can start, grow, and scale your real estate investing business. I really hope you implement what you're learning. I hope you utilize these tools, tips, tricks, strategies, and secrets. And I hope to see you on the next episode. God bless. Bye-bye.